Yeah, I kind of want to go back to that conversation, but that's all right. Let's go with... All right, so you are listening to The Witness Interview Podcast. I'm Robert Reed, and I'm speaking with Richard Watts, broadcaster, journalist, writer, poet, and DJ, amongst many, many other things. Now, uh, I'm going to have to strike through poet. I haven't written poetry or spoken oh, word. Oh, but for... there's so much poetry that you did write. Oh, I wouldn't... It wasn't great poetry to begin with. It was angry, ranty, queer punk spoken word designed to be shouted at slightly terrified crowds in pubs in Melbourne. That's what I like. (laughs) That's the stuff I like. And that's how I encountered you before I met you, because I heard about you as a poet first, not only through seeing your work printed in uh, Beat or in press or the street press anyway, but also everybody was into your work in my group of people, my group of friends at La Trobe, at least. Well, that's very flattering. Yeah. But also it's, well, Beat particularly, where I cut my teeth as a critic. Yeah, right. So this is what we were going to do. I was going to go, I know know fragments of the Richard Watts story, but I don't know all the Richard Watts story. Gimme, gimme. Well, okay, the very quick backstory. Born in Bendigo, 1967, judge or country, moved to Gippsland, Gurnai Kurnai country, grew up there, moved out of home at 17, moved to Melbourne about a year and a half later, so around 18 and a half, uh, after the local poofta bashing gang literally forced their way into my house in Maui to try and beat me up, mm-hmm. and my female flatmate pretended to be my girlfriend. I went, this is not a safe place to be an out gay man. Mm. And so, yeah, at about 18 and a half, moved to Melbourne, only to discover that I'd missed the tape end of the original punk scene. Yeah. Um, yeah. Late 80s. Yeah, late 80s. Got a job yeah. in the public service. Was quite boring for a couple of years, but my first professional writing engagements were for fantasy role-playing games. Yes, of course. Call of Cthulhu. Yes, and I the- played that. The murder, no, the horror on the horror Orient on Express. The Orient I played Express. that. Yeah. I ran that once. Yeah. So that's, I was already playing role-playing games in the country, moved to Melbourne and fell in with a, a, uh, some friends, one of whom had just had, uh, two actually, Mark Morrison and Penelope Love, had just written a role-playing supplement for the gothic horror role-playing game Call of Cthulhu, based mm. on the works of H.P. Lovecraft, called Terra. Australis. Ah, that too. I remember that too. Uh, and most recently, I've actually helped write a new edition of, of that particular supplement, writing uh-huh. about Melbourne in the 1920s as a setting for, for role-playing games. So I started cutting my teeth writing professionally with role-playing games. Then I'd, by that stage, I'd started to move into DJing in nightclubs. I, mm-hmm. It's the kind of thing- Sets that, which were legendary, I might add. Well, you hang out in goth, punk and industrial clubs long enough, nagging the DJs about to play your favourite song, and they eventually go- do you want to just want to DJ? DJ. So yeah. I learned to DJ in clubs. Uh, I was then asked to review a couple of goth industrial CD releases from local bands, mm-hmm. and they were the very first reviews I wrote. Uh, and from there, I just gradually started to immerse myself more and more. It was never a deliberate choice to become uh, an arts critic, arts journalist, uh, arts pontificator, as mm-hmm. I sometimes describe myself. It just kind of happened. So late 80s, you're seeing that sort of stuff and the community here, like that kind of creative community here. It's an interesting time in the late 80s in Melbourne because you've got old networks starting to crumble and new ones starting to kind of catalyze out of the remains, particularly specifically with an organization that you've um, had a long association with. You have the beginnings of Melbourne Fringe then too, because sort of from 82, 83, from the collapse of the pram, you had the Fringe Network, which coalesces into the festival around 87, 88. Uh, earlier than that. Um, oh, when did yeah. you re- oh, which reminds me, you were writing a book about this. I was going to write a book for the 30th anniversary of Melbourne Fringe, and I'd given myself six months to do it. Yes, I and remember. And I realized- That's I, not enough. It is not. 
not <laughs> enough. So that's a project that has gone onto the back burner a little bit, but it's still being kind of still in my mind, and I will hopefully do something for the 40th anniversary instead. But yeah, the closure of the pram factory is kind of pivotal in the creation mm. of Melbourne Fringe. And the other thing that's pivotal is the Adelaide Fringe and mm. a bunch of Melbourne artists coming back from Adelaide and saying, half the artists there are from Melbourne. Why isn't there a Melbourne Fringe Festival? Mm-hmm. And so consequently, the Melbourne Fringe then being established, I think the Fringe Network started in 82. Mm. The Fringe Festival was first held in 83. Uh, I, the, I'd have to double check these dates, so please don't quote me on them. The, the second year of the Fringe Festival, the Fringe Street Parade and Party in Brunswick Street begins yeah. and was literally, and this is, a, I love it, it's a sign of the times, these days to create such an event would take months of planning and oh, negotiations. Yeah, getting the permits would be it a nightmare. Literally kind of it took a couple of weeks to pull together and it happened. Uh, and then that became the signature event of the fringe until two thousand and one, mm. the final street parade mm. and party. Two thousand and two marks the beginning of the uh, hub model at mm. North Melbourne Town Hall. Uh, and it's only literally just yesterday that it was announced that the hub for Fringe is moving from North Melbourne Town Hall into Trades Hall, the, yeah, yeah. the People's Palace, which is a kind of a lovely place in which to embed independent arts practice, which with Melbourne Fringe is so very focused on artists in and for Melbourne, mm. unlike Adelaide Fringe, Edinburgh Fringe, Fringe World in Perth, et cetera, which are kind of for local audiences, but the majority of artists are interstate international visitors who have come to the festival. Melbourne Fringe is a bit of a weird beast in that it the majority of the people presenting work in it are Melbourne artists. It's when I like to describe it, it's, it's when the Melbourne's creative underbelly boils up to the surface for mm. a, a frantic three weeks in September. Yeah, yeah. It's really interesting. One of the interesting things about that then is that um, starting a Fringe festival before there's an international festival, because fringe festivals generally evolve around the Adelaide International Fest, Festival, Edinburgh International Arts Festival, etc. It's one of the things that is really definitive about the Melbourne independent arts scene. That yeah, uh, before there was a festival to be a fringe of, yeah. there was a Melbourne fringe. It was a fringe of nothing, um, which to me is testimony to the sheer level of creativity in the independent arts sector in Melbourne. And that continues to this day. One of the things in my day job at Arts Hub, where I've been for coming up to almost 10 years, is looking at the creative industries around the rest of the country with a particular love and passion for the independent theatre sector. And I'm just aware that to a degree, Melbourne is a bit of a black hole. It sucks in artists from other cities Ah. because uh, they go, well, we could stay here and fight to create uh, a sector of our own, or we could just move to Melbourne where there's already an audience and there's already support. A good example, not that they would say they were sucked into Melbourne's black hole orbit by any means, but the Danger Ensemble Ah, from Brisbane spent 10 years making independent work in Brisbane uh, and about a year and a half, two years ago, got to the point where uh, the the core members of that ensemble said, "There's, we've exhausted the opportunities in Brisbane, time to move to Melbourne. And th- I think that happens uh, quite a bit with the independent theatre sector. It doesn't always happen. I admire immensely the people who go, 
this is my hometown. I am staying here. Artists like Joe Louis, for example, over mm. in Perth, mm. who kind of uh, is a significant figure in the the Perth kind of independent sector. There are uh, the members of the the Last Great Hunt in Perth as well. Um, uh, Theatre Republic, a relatively new independent company in South Australia, uh, artists who are saying we need to stay in our home cities and r- enrich and strengthen the culture here. Mm. It and I admire that immensely because they're faced with two challenges. One, spend 50% of your creative energy trying to build a scene mm, kind of, yeah. or move to Melbourne where that scene already exists and invest 100% of your cre- creative energy in making new work in Melbourne. So there are some pros and cons to the strength of Melbourne's independent theatre sector in that regard, that it uh, it can be, it can have a bit of a magnetic pull for independent theatre makers from elsewhere in the country. Yeah, yeah. God, there's so many things I want to ask about that. I'm going to start with the obvious one, which is, so why Melbourne? Why do you think? I think that's a really interesting question and I still don't have a definitive answer for it. There's a number of things that have played a, a key part in that. Like? The community radio sector in Melbourne, which sprang up in the 70s, thanks Gough Whitlam, mm-hmm. um, has played a key part in the development of the live music scene in Melbourne and the independent theatre and visual arts sector in mm-hmm. Melbourne as well. Mm-hmm. We have uh, and have had for many years a really strong array, for example, of ARIs, artist-run initiatives in the visual arts sector. I think the existence of stations like Triple R, PBS, 3CR on Mm -hmm. the AM band have meant that there has been an outlet for people to talk about their work, Mm -hmm. which means more people hear about their work, come to see it, and are then inspired to make work of their own. I think without the community radio sector in Melbourne, the live music sector uh, would be so much poorer. And they've become almost not integrated, but codependent in a positive way. Mm. And I think it's the same for kind of the independent arts in any art form. You look at uh, the number of small press publishers that, that rise mm. and fall in Melbourne, the number of literary journals that are based here, mm. uh, Meangin, Overland, etc. Um, the proliferation of zines here as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so I think the creation in the, in the 70s of community radio licences, and we're we're recording this here at RMIT, which is where Triple R began. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the creation of community radio licences played a key role in the strengthening. But I suspect from what I, I know of, uh, and this is something that you and I have talked about in the past and that I've read about as well, that there was already a flourishing independent theatre sector here. Mm. So in the 50s, you had kind of communist theatre companies. Yes, yes, um, the new theatre. The new theatre, for yeah, example. Yeah. So, And they are not isolated. The Pram Factory mm. is not isolated. There has been a history going back to the kind of the, the diversity of theatres along Burke Street that you documented in a recent video, yeah, for yeah. example. The history of theatre in Melbourne is deep and entrenched and the theatre and the dance and the puppetry and the circus that I write about and talk about uh, in my professional professional capacities are just the latest in a long line of. So where those roots began, I don't know. And there's a thesis in it. So, Oh, there's definitely a thesis in that. An argument could be made that the current industry as it sort of is at the moment sort of begins here in Melbourne with the UTRC, which becomes Melbourne Theatre Company, and also uh, La Mama, which births basically everything else that happens uh, at around the same time as a very similar kind of input of energy and attention and infrastructure and funding and all that sort of stuff happens in Sydney almost exactly the same time, but develops completely differently because it's not 
you always hear about the difference of that, and that's the thing I was going to ask is, people come to Melbourne like I hear so so many of my friends, uh, theatre friends are, are Canberra people who make that decision between do I go to Sydney, do I go to Melbourne, and so many of them come to Melbourne. But the, then the question is, how many stay here versus how many go to Sydney? The ch- one of the factors at play that makes Melbourne uh, a creative city is the fact the fact that it's largely a broad, flat city. Yeah. It's very, very easy to get from A to B. Yeah. And so Despite I, how much we complain about it. Yeah. Uh, and kind of the, the psychological barrier about north side versus south side. Yeah, side. It's very, very easy to get around the city. That fosters communication. Mm. That fosters audiences moving from one side of the town to the other to see each other's uh, band, such as the the little band scene, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. in the in the late 70s. Um, and uh, the, the theatre scene now, uh, I know that um, it used to drive uh, Dan Clark when he was artistic director of Theatre Works crazy that three quarters of, of his audience, and, and I'm paraphrasing here a little, but uh, and I may not get the exact figures right. Sorry, Dan. I hope QPAC's going well. Uh, the the fact that most of his audience was coming from the north side mm. to see work in the south side mm. as opposed to the south side audience coming in. Um, they have a very different audience to um, what you would think of as a south side audience too, though, particularly with Dan's kind of work, which has been the history of Theatre Works as well because they started out as a community theatre making stuff locally for their guys and then when you're Hanny Rayson's and those kind of people leave and are replaced by by draft. He really struggled to get those guys to that audience to keep coming. Instead, he drew from this kind of north side theatre-y side of yeah. audience. But to come back to kind of that notion of the fact that Melbourne is, you can move around Melbourne easily. In Sydney, you can't. Mm. There's a bloody great harbour and all its little bays and mm. tributaries that constantly get in the way. So Sydney, I think, has a very fractured culture, uh, whereas Melbourne has a very interconnected culture. You know somebody in the theatre scene, they introduce you to somebody in the band scene who introduces Mm, mm. you to somebody in the visual arts scene. Mm. Um, And there is quite, I think, more crossover. Mm. Uh, And so as a result, there is a stronger sense of community Mm. in Melbourne. And you see that with the Community Cup. Uh, It's something that uh, Jonathan Holloway, the artistic director of Melbourne Festival, commented on Mm. when he kind of moved over from Perth. One of the first things he noticed was the strength and the vitality of the a sense of community in Melbourne. The example he used was the when Border Force said, oh, we, we are going to do a test run in Melbourne of stopping people and in the street and asking for their ID. Mm-hmm. Um, and within an hour or two, there were hundreds of people on the street ready to protest that. That wouldn't have happened in Sydney and it may not have happened in Perth either. Mm. So, well, yeah, that, that sense of community is intrinsic to Melbourne's cultural identity, political identity, social identity, and that feeds into an enormously vital and alive arts culture across the board. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned the political culture of that as well, because again, historically, uh, Melbourne's the place where those kind of riots were likely to happen. I, I think all the way back to things like the Burke Street riot, when um, the cops were- uh, Oh, the 19, what is it, 1923 or yeah, thereabouts, yeah. when the police went on strike. Went on strike. And, and there so were two or three nights city. of rioting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not until the, the government uh, enlist kind of uh, militia scab, with truncheons. Scab cops. Yeah. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. And that's because- in almost exactly the same um, way that information spread about the first white night, people heard a thing was going on and was like, oh, things happening in the city, I don't know what it is, but you've got to get down here. 
And it's because the landscape facilitates that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that, yeah, that, that the geography of Melbourne plays a key part in its, in the creation of its culture. And let's kind of uh, recognise at this point the fact that the creative culture of this city goes back 65,000 years or more. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the kind of flatness of the plain that brings it down to the water as well is a key gathering place. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. One of the things I would love to learn more about is that I know there are oral traditions kind of uh, in the Kulin Nation uh, retelling the story of the flooding of Port Phillip Bay. Yeah, kind yeah. Of, so the rising water levels after the last ice age. Yeah, yeah. And the sheer fact that that oral tradition has been passed on. Who needs computers to, to kind of send emails uh, uh-huh, to alert uh-huh. us to, to issues when we've got that kind of rich oral culture. And I would love to see more of that kind of oral tradition recognised and celebrated in, in Melbourne independent theatre. Yeah, absolutely. Which is, I think, a really interesting comparison to contemporary, well, I'll stick with theatre culture at the moment because that's the one that I know best, but I would suspect across most of the arts and literary communities, that there's a community that preserves and keeps and passes on its stories and its histories from generation to generation to generation versus ours, which wipes it out generation after generation. We have a culture of forgetting in the arts, and I know it's something that- More than just forgetting, like active erasure, I reckon. Um, It's interesting. One of the great examples is that Philip Adams Ballet Lab Mm -hmm. are now based in Temperance Hall Mm -hmm. in South Melbourne, Mm -hmm. and I suspect there's- a relatively small number of people now kind of who remember that that was the home of Antiel Theatre. Antiel Space, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and the same as kind of in another year or two, the number of people who forget that the Black Lung Theatre Company ever existed and originally operated uh, out of a room above the bar Kent Street yeah, on Smith yeah. Street, for yeah. example, uh, before they then kind of became this kind of roaming company. Um, so, yeah, as you say, the the, the culture of forgetting is an issue. And it's partially, I think, because what we're talking about and celebrating is an ephemeral art form that mm-hmm. is performed live and then unless it is documented through video, through criticism, through uh, interviews, through uh, essays and, and feature writing is easily forgotten. Mm. Um, I myself struggle to remember what I saw last year at the theatre, and yeah, that's partially yeah. because I see 170, 180 shows a year. Um, I'm kind of constantly going, right, no more brain space to remember that, let it go, think about, cling on to this new memory. And yet, um, every single drama student will be able to tell you about who Shakespeare was, who Aeschylus was, who uh, Ibsen was, from hundreds and hundreds of years ago to thousands of years ago from other countries. So, does that suggest that what is is lacking in Australian culture uh, is perhaps a lack of pride in our own culture, Uh, and consequently that culture is not being documented and written about and celebrated in the same way that... Uh, because and because the reason perhaps we have a lack of pride is the cultural cringe is alive and well. Mm. It was supposed to have died off circa 1988 and the oh, bicentenary, yeah. but it's very very clear that you will be most talked about as an Australian artist if you have success overseas. overseas. We still tend to overlook and ignore or take for granted the remarkable work that is being made by Australian artists. You look at some of the the work being made for children and young people mm-hmm. by. Mm-hmm. Uh, theatre companies in this country, mm. uh, whether it's Windmill in Adelaide or Arena, Arena up in yeah, Bendigo yeah. or Barking Gecko over in Perth or uh, Monkey Bar Theatre in Sydney. Um, they're making really high quality work and often work that is vigorous and bold and when it is presented at uh, children's and theatre festivals overseas is acclaimed as incredibly rigorous and exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Polyglot Theatre, for example, are mm. doing world-class work, but they rarely get 
get talked about. However, if, I don't know, if Sue Giles from Polyglot uh, was to win kind of uh, a big UK theatre award, suddenly she would be in demand for interviews by the local media. So there's a couple of things at play here. There is a snobbery, uh, not a snobbery, a a disdain for the arts that is entrenched in Australian culture, which Mm. we need to overcome. Mm. Um, Consequently, I think a lot of people working in the arts maybe subconsciously don't believe that their own work is worth celebrating in the same way. Plus, Mm. there's the tall poppy syndrome um, and there's the fact that for decades, centuries even, uh, our education system was predicated around celebrating uh, and commemorating the motherland culture. Uh, And then by about the late 40s, the 50s, we started to celebrate American culture. There still has not been a place to celebrate, truly document, celebrate and recognise the remarkable creative stories being made and told in this country. Which I wonder, uh, to go out on a tiny bit of a limb, if that isn't also about the difficulty of being able to square away what Australian culture is in order to be able to celebrate it. In its um, most of its attempts, it's always been a kind of monolithic monoculture that we attempt to celebrate as Australian, which excludes what, a good 70 or 80 percent of the, um, the, the experiences of cultures that are here outside of the white um, Anglo experience. And so not only a reticence towards being able to open up to a, that kind of concept of sort of 90s multicultural polis, that internationalism that sort of briefly flourished in the early 90s, but then was shut down by the rise of Howard, sort of, well, Howard and the um, neo-right conservative. There was that kind of moment of being a multicultural society, which I don't know. It's, it strikes me that we, we struggle with that, even though it's so clearly what this community is, which is a bit about maintaining ownership of the the colony, but also all of the things that we were talking about there, um, the cultural cringe, the the tall poppy syndrome, all of those sort of things, are mechanisms of colonialism too. They're ways of being able to silence most voices, put you in your place. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right down to celebrating England as the motherland, as the empire, etc. Even though almost none of the artists who would have identified as being um, English and going home to England and stuff like that were born in England or anything like that. And British culture still has an enormous pull here as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so it's we can't ignore it. But it's one of the things that fascinates me, that notion of having just recently been over at the Adelaide Festival, that for me one of the most outstanding shows that I saw there was Counting and Cracking, mm-hmm. uh, Shakti's play, which had been years in development. Uh, and I'm so thrilled that Belvoir and Sydney Festival and Adelaide Festival managed to get it up on stage. 16 actors... I think six different languages being spoken, translated live on stage by actors sitting at the side of the stage. Uh, every, every everything from uh, from Yolnu and and English to two different languages from Sri Lanka. One, of the, it was a glorious, beautiful, epic piece of storytelling that told the stories of four generations of a family Mm. uh, and their displacement from Ceylon as it was then to Sri Lanka uh, and civil war and uh, the the coming to Australia. And one of the things that made it so rich and beautiful and memorable is because it's telling stories we don't get to hear instead of yet another version of the middle-class dinner party. And I know that's a bit of a cheap shot when it comes to main stage theatre. Oh, but there's so much of it. I know. That's the thing. It, it's a cliche because it's true. Yeah. Um, and so instead of giving us yet another iteration of that and going, um, but this time we've, uh, we've kind of added 
kind of like one character from a, a non-Anglo-Saxon background or something. Yeah. Suddenly there's one actor from a, an Anglo-Saxon background and 15 other actors from non-Anglo-Saxon background. So it's telling fresh stories, it's different perspectives that are urgently and desperately needed in our theatre and particularly in our main stage theatre. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The independent sector is kind of kicking far greater goals when it comes to, uh, to, to broadening the horizons of what's possibly narratively, creatively, artistically, ethnically. Um, but it and it saddens me on one level that something like Counting and Cracking uh, is so rare. Mm. It was a beautiful piece of work. It kind of, I think it still had one or two flaws. Um, it well, wasn't it a perfect doesn't. piece of theatre. Uh, but I want to see... I, God, I want to see more work like it. Yeah. It's like when the uh, National Play Festival came to Melbourne a couple of years ago and they had a session devoted to uh, playwriting from Aotearoa New Zealand mm-hmm. and then they had the Lotus Play readings as well uh, through um, facilitated by Contemporary Asian Australian Performance, which Annette Chinois is spearheading and doing such a great job with. Kind of like, um, there were four readings in the, the Lotus Play reading and I was just like, all of these are different stories and new stories and we haven't heard them and mm. I really want to see all four of these plays now. Yeah. And X many years later, we still haven't seen them. Or maybe, I think we've seen maybe one. It is. It it has been um, for, I would say, at least 20 or 30 years has been um, the practice of main stage and smaller sort of medium-sized companies um, to open themselves up to diversity through readings programs and development programs, but to sort of cordon off the main stage and cordon off productions. And not only cordon off the main stage and productions, they're cordoning off the lead roles within those companies. Yes, yes, the management. Uh, the mani- the kind of, and, and it's not until uh, – it's something that I'm really conscious of at, in a small way that I can do at – with my program Smart Arts at Triple R, uh, that the next person who fills that slot should not look like me. Mm. And if anybody listening to this wants to be mentored, uh, and you are particularly if you are from kind of a, a non-Anglo background, please talk to me because. Uh, in another five and a half years' time, I'll have been doing that show for 20 years if yeah. I'm still alive. Um, that's an entire generation that will have grown up with yeah. kind of like a cisgendered white guy. Yeah. Yes, I'm queer, but kind of telling telling people, pontificating about what is good art. Um, until people like myself, uh, until people like the artistic directors of all our major theatre companies, orchestras, arts organisations, start to actively plan for strategies to allow people not like us, who don't look like us, um, to, to come into those roles. And when I say who don't look like us, what I effectively mean is kind of like, where are the the strategic plans for the boards of those organisations mm. and the key management roles to say, right, it's time for us. If we are committed to to diversity and to and I saw a great what was the diversity is a white word, um, yeah, yeah. Um, but if those companies are truly committed to cultural change and lasting cultural change, then they need to implement strategies so that the next artistic directors do are not another kind of generation of relatively young to middle aged white guys yeah, yeah. and kind of middle aged white women. Uh, be proactive, make change, do what uh, Veronica Pardo at Arts Access, she stepped down from the role that she was in uh, at Arts Access Victoria, I think, because she said, 
somebody with a disability needs to be the CEO of this company. Mm-hmm. So she stepped out of the role and was instrumental uh, in helping create a role that could then be filled by somebody with a disability to lead that company. Yeah, yeah. That is a wonderful challenge to the rest of the sector and it ne- it's a challenge that needs to be picked up and acted on yeah, yeah. by the, all the senior kind of leadership people, artistic directors, executive producers slash general managers, whatever they call themselves, at all the major arts organisations in this company. Yeah, if you yeah. are committed to cultural change, don't just cast two or three actors or one or two actors with each production from culturally diverse communities. Yeah. Cast yourself in a different role, take yourself out of that role and put somebody else in it who, yeah, yeah, yeah. who can bring a lived experience of racism, uh, uh, challenges, diversity, to make sure that then it's that because that change has to come from the top down. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can't kind of the independent sector can do all it likes uh, in in advocating and presenting kind of new viewpoints, new stories, more diverse casts. Yeah, yeah. But um, kind of it's like trying to kind of I don't know, turn an elephant around by tugging on its tail. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. it has to come from the head. Well, and there, there's that. Um I often think about these kind of positions, um, especially if I end up applying for them, which I regularly do and then don't get anywhere with it, um, is that notion of the the value of having, having privilege is that you can use that privilege to gain, uh, to create space for everybody else, to, um, to facilitate access to the networks that privilege has generated. It's, that's the, it's the, it's the, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Spider-Man, um, Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, it's also, again, one of those things of we, when we forget um, our past, we forget important parts of it because the model of creating inclusivity that we currently use and trumpet as, um, oh, isn't it great that in the last five years or so, our companies have woken up, our national companies have woken up and are doing this, except that our national companies have been doing this this way for decades because um, uh, Playbox, when it was then, was very um, committed to uh, inter cultural relations with China and um, with uh, most parts of Asia because Carrillo was interested in that sort of stuff. And then even the the Australian Elizabethan Theatre Trust, which is the precursor to the Australia Council, um, which often gets kind of recalled as being a sort of fusty white organisation that only programmed um, Shakespeare and, and classics, used to tour works by Athol Fugard and um, it brought out a huge tour of, uh, of um, uh, The Boys. I can't remember was the boys was the name of the title of works from South Africa, from um, uh, uh, what is the thing, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. And they'd showcase them and they'd promote them and they'd tour them around. But it's a, still a kind of cultural imperialism. Look at, the, look at the stuff that comes from over there. And that's the model we still kind of have. It is. Uh, it's a model that is essentially saying to white audiences, Broaden your viewpoint a little yeah, by yeah. seeing this work. Yeah, yeah. You're the centre, but see everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we need to change from the centre. Especially since, um, uh, again, on numbers, I look at uh, the the kind of major, the numbers of the major theatre companies audience-wise over the years, and you're looking at, you know, 100,000, 200,000 people per year, not in counting um, uh, return tickets and stuff like that. And that's a sixth of the population of Melbourne alone. And there are a lot of reasons from geographic. It's difficult to get in from the outer suburbs. But also, if you're not seeing work that reflects you or interests you or speaks to you, why would you spend $120 to go see that stuff? Most people can't spend that, et cetera. And I think that... I was just writing this for a job application that I'm not going to get, um, that uh, that Australian theatre, particularly in Melbourne, but I think across the board, has inherited that kind of structure which 
privileges the centre and places um, everything that's on its on its peripherals facing in towards the centre. So that what you have to do is climb the ladder to get the top, and the top is represented by spaces that have been historically um, filled by white people and male people. Yeah, um, which is an inheritance from the industrial era. That's how we structured things in the 18th and 19th century in England. Um, and before that, it was very different. It was community-based. It was local. All right, so that's a long, long walk from... So Richard turned up in Melbourne around the late 80s. This is one of the things that I like to ask our elders um, uh, in, in this community. Um, how have you seen the community, the city change and its relationship to performance? So it, when you got here, basically, the, that major cut happens that destroys Ant Hill and destroys uh, Whistling in the Theatre and all those kind of mid-rent the church, et cetera. Like that's the, that kind of heart of that system is cut out. And then you've been here for us rebuilding through the 90s and the 2000s. What's what's been your impression of the sector as it changes? It's one of the the, the impressions is the waves that come through, mm. um, and it, it's interesting that I, look, I'm 51. I've been doing smart arts for 14 and a half years, um, but I haven't necessarily been involved. I didn't get involved uh, even as an audience member with the theatre when I first moved to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, I got involved with role-playing games. I was involved with role-playing games. I stayed involved. Then I got started kind of checking out the live music scene. Mm -hmm. Then I started kind of uh, live music scene uh, leads to clubbing and DJing and Mm -hmm. so forth. Um, So it's probably really only been, say, the last 20 years that I would consider myself to be an active kind of participant in the kind of theatrical and and visual kind of arts culture mm-hmm. uh, maybe a, a little a little bit longer than that because I was doing spoken word for example as we said in the in the in the 90s um, and doing spoken word performances then led to talking to other artists mm. and, and seeing kind of uh, circus or whatever um, but it's interesting my I mean just to backtrack for a moment uh, Rob what's the very first theater production you remember seeing theater musical theater l- production performance? God. Uh, all right. I have an v- incredibly vague memory of a children's theatre show that I was dragged to with my school that I think was in the church. The, and I say the church, I mean the church theatre, the Australian Contemporary Theatre Company up in Hawthorne. I think. Might have been Polyglot. I don't know from... No, it might have been Handspan. I don't know from memory, but my, my understanding of those companies now is like... The things I remember on stage seem very handspanny. But then the first one that I can actively tell you was I got taken to a university production of uh, You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Mm-hmm. The very first thing I remember seeing is the original Australian production of Jesus Christ Superstar. Ah, uh, the and, Harry and Miller one. Yeah. Oh, amazing. So, uh, and uh, my, that's, that's before you were. You, you that was when I'm that's a kid the in the 70s, country. Right? Yeah. Of, yeah. It's, uh, I think it's about 74. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and again, correct. I apologise if that date is incorrect, but one of the things that laid the foundation for who I am is my parents and their love of kind of visual art and theatre mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, musical theatre. My parents met on a, uh, a student production of The Mikado. Ah, um, where at, where at? Uh, uh, they were at the Melbourne Teachers College, which in those days was around the corner from where Triple R is now, or not far away from where Triple R is now in, in uh, East Brunswick. Yeah, right. Um, but- 
because of them, uh, I was taken to the theatre from a relatively young age. My overwhelming memories of Jesus Christ Superstar are the box of scorched almonds that we had at the interval, yeah. but then the crucifixion scene at the end and the un- this kind of the the stagecraft and the music and the lighting. Um, I was then uh, by about 1981, 82 in high school. I was the only boy in the kind of jazz ballet class being taught in the local in the Trafalgar Town Hall where I went to high school. So there's there's always been this interest in the theatre, but mm. it's kind of sometimes it's come from I was in high school musicals and so forth, mm-hmm. and then I moved to Melbourne and auditioned for a couple of professional shows, and were told, well, no, you might have been good in a high school, but <laughs> welcome to the real world, kid. And that I retreated back into the, a world of books and yeah. fantasy and role playing games, and uh, and so when I started to see live music, that re inspired the performance side of me, which then led to performance poetry, and then led to going to the theatre and so forth. But um, to come back to your questions about the the waves that I've seen, part of them are have been defined by my personal passions and interests. So mm. the wave of poets and spoken word that was people like Alicia Sometimes yeah. and Adam Ford and poetry at the Perseverance and, and so forth. Um, and then uh, seeing and supporting Jello Biafra and Bikini Kill. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a real wave of spoken word. And one of the things that got me involved in the professional performing arts sector in Melbourne was talking to Melbourne Fringe about programming more poetry and spoken word into the festival. Mm. Um, uh, and that was was when I just started working for Express Media, the youth arts organisation. Yep. And I'd got to there because the, my love of poetry and spoken word meant that I was called in for a job interview by Campion Descent, the then artistic director of Next Wave. Mm-hmm. That really opened my eyes uh, working for Next Wave and opened doors as well. Express Media, the same. But so I've had these waves of personal interest, which have meant I've paid more attention to poetry and spoken word and then mm. zine making and then independent theatre uh, and the goth industrial alternative scene or the club Q&A, the queer and alternative that I ran for 12 years, co-ran for 12 years. But as I've in that weird orbit that I've been on in my arts career, which has moved me through these different sectors, mm. slowly I've been pulled more towards the performing arts. Mm. And one of the things I've really noticed over the years is, yeah, the, the kind of waves of creativity that come. So uh, the fact that around the same time that the Black Lung were doing really creative and interesting work, for example, there were other companies who were doing what was being called junkyard theatre, mm-hmm. for example, the kind of the kind of raw aesthetic of some of those companies was really compelling and fascinating. And then you had the storeroom theatre opening Mm -hmm, up. mm -hmm. And kind of, uh, I remember the the late Ralph McLean calling it La Papa as opposed Ah. to uh, uh, La Mama Ah. uh, because it had a very masculine energy. Oh, yeah. Mm. Artistic director of which is now the artistic director of La Boite. Todd McDonald, Todd yes. McDonald. But that was where I first saw Angus Serini performing, yeah. for example. Yeah. So there have been these waves of artists coming through, and it seems like every five to ten years there's an, a new couple of small companies, perhaps all the same cohort uh, that have come out of Deakin or the yeah. VCA yeah. and so forth. And at the moment it feels like there's a little bit of a lull, and I'm waiting for that next wave. Okay. Um, Who was the last wave? Ah, oh, um, you're going to put me on a spot. I'd, I'd literally have to go through some notes and start looking at some old reviews and so forth. 
Uh, and that's partially my age as well, that I'm no oh, longer yeah. perhaps quite as intimately connected with the grassroots. Yeah. Um, because as I've, having d- been doing smart arts for so many years, I now, instead of just focusing almost exclusively on independent on the independent sector, uh, I'm looking at the contemporary dance sector mm. and the mm. main stage theatre sector and cabaret and circus and what's going on in the international kind of uh, arts festival scene as well. So uh, my focus has broadened. Mm. And as a result of that, great. I now have a much broader overview of what's going on, but I've perhaps lost the attention to detail that would have once enabled me to to give you a snap answer and say, okay, these are the three kind of companies that Mm. were part of the most recent wave of the Melbourne independent theatre sector. Yeah, yeah. That explains a lot, actually, because I've always admired um, your ability to be able to just switch from one thing to another and go, we're going to talk about visual arts, now we're going to talk about music, now we're going to talk about poetry, now we're going to talk about theatre, back to visual arts, and just seem to be comprehensively across everything. (laughs) Um, jack so, of all trades, master of, all of trades, none. master of none. Look who you're talking to. Um, and I'm not even jack of all trades. Few, uh, in fact. Um, I was going to ask about that though. So that description of that kind of uh, fast turnover of, of, of waves of performers and, and sort of generations of performance makers in Melbourne um, is a kind of thing that's sped up over the years. Because back in the '70s and stuff, it used to be you get 10 years of a generation, you get your APG or whatever. They're the ones who are making everything, and then uh, you know. Uh, a new group will come through in sort of the 80s, etc. By about the late 90s, that's down to sort of five years. And by the early 2000s, that's a, a new generation every kind of two or three years, which is regularly described as, look how vibrant the scene is, which to me is not vibrant, to me is fevered. Because what happens to those people after that first two or three years when they're part of a cohort? If there's one or two who will continue making work, what happens to the rest? It, it does suggest that the... Uh the culture has become more focused on uh, – it is narrowed to you have a very short window of time in which to prove yourself. Mm. Uh, and if you can't prove yourself and if you can't support yourself, people move on. Yeah. Um, which uh, partially comes back to a lack of funding support and a, uh, for artists of all stripes, whether kind of emerging, developing, mid-career, mm. et cetera. Um, and the media cycle we live in plays a, a key role in that as well. Mm. Um, everybody, it used to be that the music press was the kind of like, what's the next big thing? Yeah. Right, now let's tear them down. What's the next next big thing? <laughs> yeah. But the rise of social media, the 24-hour news cycle, means that it's even harder for kind of, I suspect, for independent artists to carve out a niche and a space and to call their own. Mm. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I hope the um, advent of Melbourne Fringe moving to Trades Hall and uh, recreating two permanent spaces for performance for independent artists all year round will help perhaps provide a, a new centre of gravity, a new focus for independent artists. And uh will kind of hopefully maybe mean that the cycle can slow down a little bit. Mm. Uh, So um, is a space like that, um, I always wonder about spaces like that, which have, 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 uh, exactly that kind of power to create a space for um, uh, audiences to go to a certain kind of work. But I wonder uh, often about those spaces if they start to generate a kind of wave of their own. And so the hub model has its ben- has its pluses, but also has its, its, its minuses, right? And has a kind of... Um, uh, uh, either it has the it brings in a lot of artists and generates an audience for the space rather than the artists, or it creates its own um, aesthetic, and so it's another place that a lot of other people can't get access to. That's Thoughts. a statement rather than a question. Yeah, I know it's it's a provocation rather than just a statement. 
I think uh, it, it, part of it comes down to the curation and the programming of that mm. space. Um, do you, if you only program kind of work that you like, then that is going to be a very limited space, mm. um, or that you think you can get audience to? Yeah, uh, which brings us down the commercial kind of yeah. and, the, and the main stage model. Um, but I think. Uh, as long as there are a diversity of arts hubs, be it La Mama, be it uh, whatever happens at Trades Hall, yeah. uh, be it the work that is being programmed out at Northcote Town Hall, which yeah. has been a really exciting place to see it's new been work amazing the over the, the last couple of yeah. years, theatre works, uh, arts house, etc. And, and as long as we are, and we are seeing a fairly regular turnover of creative programming teams at those venues every four or five years mm. or six years, somebody moves on and somebody else comes in, I think more... Hubs like that will be are, are needed and valuable, and as long as yeah, kind of there is new blood and new creative ideas coming in every few years, then um, it only bodes well for the furthering of more diverse, artistically uh, different, uh, and unusual and provocative work. And I look forward to seeing it and being surprised by it. And that's an excellent place to bring that to a close. So thank you, Richard Watts, for your time. Thank you, Robert Reed. This has been the Witness Interview Podcast. You have been listening to Robert Reed, Richard Watts, sound by Ben Keen. Um, and that's sort of as rough as I'm going to make the ending. Thanks, Rob. <laughs>